Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Devika Girish. And I'm Clinton Crude. And we're the editors of Film Comment. In case you've missed the news, we just relaunched our podcast last week after a year-long hiatus. We're glad to be back. And in this episode, we're looking at one of the big developments that the film community grappled with while we were away. The emergence of virtual film festivals. As the pandemic shut down cinemas and made travel impossible, Festivals adopted a variety of strategies to keep bringing movies to their audiences. Some, like Cannes, were canceled. Others went fully online. And many, like the New York Film Festival, Sundance, and the Berlinale, experimented with hybrid formats. These new models have opened up a host of questions. Is it really a film festival if you're not in a cinema? What does the virtual format expose about the workings of festivals? And as theaters start to reopen all over the world, Are these changes here to stay? In this episode, we invited two festival veterans, curator Abby Sun and critic Jessica Kiang, to dig into these questions and more. Today we have two very exciting guests. I'll let them introduce themselves. Abby, do you want to introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Abby Sun, and I'm the curator of The Dockyard, a bi-weekly screening series of creative nonfiction traditionally held at the Brattle Theater in Harvard Square, and now we're online. I'm also a freelance programmer and a film critic. Great, great, welcome. And uh, Jessica, we have somebody dialing in from darkest Berlin. <laughs> yes, yes, it is It is early evening here in Berlin, so it is already pitch dark. Uh, my name is Jessica Kiang. I'm a Berlin-based uh, film critic. I write for Variety, for uh, Sight and Sound, the New York Times, basically anybody who will pay me. Um, And uh, I have uh, traditionally um, uh, been an avid festival attendee. Um, So yes, this this particular podcast, I think is pretty well within my wheelhouse. Well, we're so glad to have you both. Um, And I, we were just talking before we started recording how this is almost exactly the one year anniversary of, um, you know, when the lockdown started happening, at least in New York. So just the perfect occasion to discuss today's topic, uh, virtual film festivals. And we're glad to have a European and a American correspondent. And so this, you know, we can talk about virtual film festivals from a really global standpoint. I like the idea of being an American correspondent because usually the correspondents are the ones in far-flung areas, but um, I suppose the greater Boston area might as well be that compared to New York. What are conditions like on the ground now in Boston? So in terms of theaters, uh, theaters have sort of been open and variably open and closed throughout the past year, uh, but concessions have not been you know, the theaters can't sell concessions. So most of the art house venues and the single screen, the independent venues have not been open or they've only been open for private rentals throughout the past year when it's been possible. There have also been periods where all theaters have been shut down in Boston and in Massachusetts. But um, yeah, the, the multiplexes have been open for a while now. Uh, you, c- you could have watched things like... Um, I don't know. Tom and Jerry? Is that in? <laughs> yeah, you can watch Tom and Jerry, I, whatever the flavor of the week is. 
currently you can I mean there are theaters very close to where I am that are open I have not set foot in a theater in a year so yeah um and Jessica is, is, there, is there a similar situation going on in in Germany I'm not sure what the... yeah well in, in in Berlin at the moment they're discussing the the slow reopening um of of all cultural institutions um and so that's supposed to be happening maybe at the end of this month but at the moment cinemas are closed um however uh it has it has not been that long for me since I've been in a theater because actually there was one day for some reason they managed to find some loophole there was one day where there was um a series of, there was like i think four maybe five of the berlinale films were actually screened in a, a a local movie theater um and it was such a bizarre surreal thing to just have that one day and then to be going back to the virtual experience um but yeah so i had a i had a one day proper berlinale and then the rest of it was all online Right. They actually did that uh, in a few places around the world. Like they had like venue in Australia and then I think one. But that was by the Berlinale itself or distributors uh, took it upon themselves to host these screenings? It was distributors. So it was actually quite a random selection of, of films that were there. I, and I don't know why it wasn't sort of more widely put on because we were all thinking, listen, if we can, if you know what, and it was only, there was only maximum of like 10 people in the cinema at any one time, but it was like, well, if they can do this, why can't they do it for all of the films? Surely, you know, um, but yeah, so. Probably some, you know, backroom deals. That's quite interesting. Well, that uh, that's a good segue into the first question that Clint and I had for you both. Uh, we, we're going to sort of pick your brains uh, in this chat uh, because, you know, Jessica, I know you've been covering a lot of festivals even throughout the pandemic. Uh, Abby has also been writing great pieces about festivals and doing a lot of research into the, you know, festival institution, uh, especially during this period. So, so we want to hear, you know, uh, about your experiences and your thoughts. Clint, did you want to lead us in? Maybe each of you could speak a little bit to uh, which festivals you thought were most successful, um, maybe which one you just sort of enjoyed the most. And, you know, I don't want to I don't want to put you on the spot and force you to pick favorites here either. But, you know, we can just uh, describe the, the aspects that kind of you thought worked the best. Yeah, thanks for this question. It's a quite interesting one for me because I, I worked for several years programming films for film festivals, including True False in Columbia, Missouri, which was my home, which is my hometown. And the interesting thing about working for a festival like True False is that because of its geographic location in the middle of this country and pretty far from cultural centers of film production, is that I, I was programming films and watching films primarily through digital screeners in for years in the first place. So it's not in, in a lot of ways, the pandemic conditions kind of just forced everyone into encountering these works the same way that I have been already. Uh, every year, there would be a few festivals that I would attend. Uh, I got sent to a couple of festivals a year. Uh, on the festival's dime to scout, but otherwise, unless I was invited to be some sort of industry expert or to moderate Q and A's after films, and those types of gigs would usually only pay 
you know, would cover the festival pass and accommodations, but maybe I would have to fly myself out there. And flying from the middle of Missouri in the US can be a quite expensive prospect in the first place. So I had to be pretty choosy about which festivals I would attend or not. So for me, a lot of the festivals that I quote unquote, attended during the pandemic were festivals that I only encountered online anyway, in, in the sense that, you know, I would write to uh, sales agents or producers that had films at these festivals and I, or use industry portals like Sonando or Festival Scope Pro in order to contact whoever was handling the rights to the films to ask for a screener. And so when virtual festivals happened, it was sort of, I mean, it's using a lot of the same platforms. In the US, there were new platforms that got introduced, things like um, Eventive or Shift72, which is what a lot of the bigger festivals use because they are able to more customize those platforms. But for me, honestly, <laughs> um, a lot of the things did not change. Of course, I super missed attending in person the few festivals a year that I did because that was a place to recharge for me, to run into friends and colleagues that I only saw a couple of times out of the year. And because I don't live in New York or Berlin or Paris or London or Toronto, it's, it's kind of hard for me to just run into someone um, you know, go for a walk with someone in a park. Yeah, I often think of it as like, you know, it's a festival, it's supposed to be a party, right? But we've all been to like, we've all been to like Zoom birthday parties or like, you know, wedding celebrations. I hope not anyway. But, and you know, it's not, it, they're not that much fun. You're just sort of like looking, sitting in your chair, looking around. Yeah, so kind of that long caveat aside, the most interesting thing that I saw in the last year wasn't actually a festival. Uh, because, I mean, I think that some festivals that I attended did things quite well, especially the later festivals starting in the fall that didn't have to start from sort of this emergency, let's port everything online mode, which was just kind of a survival tactic. Um, but for instance, IDFA used a Snapchat API called Oye. And so they hosted like some official festival Q&As on this platform, which included uh, some more casual spaces like karaoke themed rooms. I think it was so popular that actually Sundance um, had IDFA Doc Lab. Um, so this platform is called Do Not Touch. And they actually included this virtual ferry from the Sundance New Frontier. Sorry, did you, did you say a virtual ferry? Yeah, so it was like a photo of a ferry. Like a magical creature? <laughs> no, 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 like a boat. A boat. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Good question so, though. So Amsterdam, like from, from city center to get to the eye museum, you have to like get on a ferry and cross, but you, you had to click on like text that said like, take the ferry to Amsterdam. And then it opens the portal that is the dock lab. I wandered through the uh, Sundance New Frontier space as well. That's very like, that's very CD-ROM, but again, like there is something that's like hypertext. Those early, like uh, what was, what's that patchwork girl, the very early, interactive or porpentine if we're talking about hypertext right or network narratives those those early days of uh when people were exploring 
narratives that could use the you know multi-nodal ways of the internet and it's it's been curious to see that come back i mean um i so i was i i did a little bit of work for the berlin critics week i was on the selection committee there and they used this platform called gather which apparently is I mean, I had never encountered it before. Apparently, it's quite popular. And it's literally like a Mario, uh, you know, it looks like the Mario interface and you get these little 8-bit avatars. Like Mario, the Nintendo game? Yeah, yeah, sort of like, okay, I, I've like played Mario once, so maybe this comparison <laughs> doesn't hold. But it's just like a very old-fashioned, or old-fashioned as in very like early 2000s video game. But then there's a little uh audio and video chat feature that's proximity enabled so if you go you know if you're if you can move your avatar and if you can go close to someone and then that turns on their audio and video chat so it's sort of trying to replicate the experience of uh you know wandering around at a party and you know being able to walk away when you're done with the conversation but here you your avatar kind of like pointedly walks away from a group and goes and sort of very you know in a kind of stalkery way <laughs> goes and follows someone else into a corner so it was really fascinating it sounds just like a projection of like neurosis like a, a neurotics experience of social interactions at a festival i mean honestly it sounds kind of like hell to me um, yeah. <laughs> I, um, but i'm also I, i'm i'm curious because i think a lot of i think a lot of what abby is saying certainly um speaks to the fact that it's a lot of these um additional bells and whistles that that festivals are trying to offer um they might serve certain people better than others it depends on the functionality of what what you do and what you use the film festival for they're, they're just not things that I use and the closest I guess I came was um, attending virtual Sundance um, and I know that as, as you as you mentioned Abby that there's, there was a apparently so they ported that over from from IDFEL part of part of that program and and I know that even there were quite a few fellow critics who who did really participate in in those sort of breakout rooms in you know cocktail hours or whatever it is but I have a really uh, and maybe it is just me I don't think it is just me I think it's, it's a few of us but uh, this sort of weird sense of the uncanny valley actually that the 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 closer that they try to mimic the real life experience of being at a festival, all I can ever see is all the ways that it's different. And it actually becomes quite a depressing thing anyway. So, I mean, when you when you combine that with my natural antisocial tendencies and the, the fact that at a festival like Sundance, I'll have a very heavy workload and will feel guilty at the best of times for not, for not being um, at home at my computer writing. Um, so, it just it meant that I, I basically stayed away from all of those things. I, I mean, as I always do, I'm, I'm the person who bolts for the exits when the when the Q&A starts. So um, I, I, I tend not to, to actually uh, really engage that much with a lot of the support stuff that festivals put on, even when they're in their physical editions. So I'm certainly not going to try and do that in their virtual editions. Well, I think that kind of is a good opening to to kind of ask you about how instead of maybe like how how this has affected our social lives <laughs> like how has this affected your the work that you do i mean i think that if if nothing else i think from your perspective jessica this transition to, to virtual has definitely probably changed very much yes that yes absolutely it, absolutely in fact i mean it's direct contrast to, to Abby's experience. I, I think uh, as a press person who attends festivals uh, this going online has really knocked me for six um, and especially considering 
you know, it was really even the traveling aspect of um, festival going in an in a ordinary given year takes up a huge part of my life and actually was a, is a huge part of my identity and uh, of who I think I am as, as a film critic. Um, so not doing that all of a sudden um, has just been has been a massive adjustment um, and also to be. Um, and I don't want to single out any one particular festival here because I think it's a general thing. And again, I'm speaking from the very narrow perspective of a press person attending these things. So not from a curatorial perspective and not from somebody who actually is involved in the logistics of trying to keep a festival going under the uh, difficult circumstances. But for me, I think one of the disappointments actually has been that um, so many of the inconveniences and so many of the, the worse aspects of the physical festival experience have seemed to have been ported over onto the online festival experience um, when there's no necess necessity for them to be. And um, that's one thing that I, I, I am disappointed with the, with the festival world in general, the festival industry in general, not that there is some sort of grand council who you can go and put these things to and has then get a... Wait, you don't have their email? I'll, I'll, I'll hook you up. <laughs> oh, the Illuminati, you're one of them. Okay, grand. Um, but that not as many festivals as I thought would have really tried to uh, see what we're doing now, what we, what we have had to do, this necessity as, as an opportunity as well and as an opportunity to maybe address some of those things and, and the, the flaws that I'm thinking about are obviously again from my very narrow perspective but things like the the, the viewing window things like uh, in Sundance specifically um, I don't understand why virtual festivals have tended to be shorter than, than physical festivals and I certainly don't understand one of my biggest bugbears is why everything all of the big films say for example in, in, in Sundance all had to premiere the opening weekend when you're not actually physically demanding that people you know up sticks and fly out and, and pay for accommodations what, like that's that's really literally the only good thing about this the online festival experience is that you're not expecting people to shell out enormous amounts of cash and so you don't have that worry that oh people are only going to be there for five days so we have to you know make sure that all of the big stuff plays this way and when, when those restrictions are lifted, um, as they are in the online experience, I don't understand why, why, they, why that still happened that way. And it contributed to, I mean, Sundance for me was actually a pretty miserable experience because it, I was so busy and so stressed and I had absolutely none of the normal outlets that you would have at a very busy festival like that. So it's, and it's not, it's not that the Sundance themselves weren't putting on their networking events or whatever it was. It's just that actually, the, certainly the way I negotiate festivals in general is to go to the movies, to do my work, and then in between those little moments to grab a cup of coffee with somebody to walk back from the cinema with them. And, and the, those, if we're not going to have those things, I don't understand why we have to have all of the, the bad stuff as well. And it just uh, contributed to a pretty stressful situation. So Sundance was 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 really tough for me. Um, and uh, yeah, I have to say, uh, I also attended Sundance, and something I was thinking about was that already, I think the way that the infrastructure of criticism around festivals is structured, um, there's a way in which. Is bad. <laughs> it, it, yeah, I mean, it does not cultivate, it does not nurture the space for good, thoughtful film criticism. I, I've always found it so stressful to watch movies all day, come back to my room, try to crank out review. And, you know, it's the game is always like trying to get it out first, right? Trying to get out the first review. That's kind of the game a lot of publications are playing. 
And it's just not something that respects the work and labor of criticism. Festivals aren't for critics. I disagree. I mean, Berlinale had a an event that was just for critics and industry. Well, that, uh, yeah, but even that is not necessarily for critics when you really, I mean, they're industry. But, they, they, but festivals thrive on reviews. You know, they're constructed in many ways in order to create buzz around certain films before they hit the market. But my point is more that like the goal of the festival is not to produce interesting criticism. Getting that coverage, I think, is a very important part of it. I mean, but they use criticism to, I mean, they, we have to submit our links after the festival and then the festival uses them, you know, uses the uh, criticism generated out of it to talk about, you know, whatever it achieved. And I'm not saying that it's, you know, I, I'm saying it's the whole system, the way that all the per parts work together. It doesn't allow the space. Surely the philosophy of anybody who's setting up a festival, that their base philosophy, before we get into the individual nitty gritty politics of it, but their base philosophy is the elevation of the art of cinema. And if you believe that that film criticism is a part of that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's where maybe I, I, I would think that that's what most people would say. And but I'm not entirely convinced that but that's everybody... the world I want is what exactly. I'm saying. You know, this that's was, the world this... I want. And this was our opportunity to hold people's feet to the fire over that particular claim then, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you mean, you mean this, 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 uh, the, the rise of the virtual festival is an opportunity to do that or the, the pandemic itself? The, well, the, the rise of the virtual festival and the pandemic, I think it was just, it was an opportunity to rethink things. Um, and I, I absolutely agree with Devika. I think that's so much. And I, I'm a trade reviewer as well. And that traditionally is one of the most pressurized, um, you know, got to get be got to get be first, got to meet every embargo, you know, certainly got to try anyway. Uh, I'm quite conscious that I have not managed to do that. So I'm feeling a bit bad. Jessica, <laughs> <laughs> you're... Your review that came out yesterday of New, of Alice Diop's film, was so great. Yeah, I have to say, Jessica, you make me feel very bad because I'm always like, I, I can never write things overnight. And then I read the things you write and I'm like, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much. And in my defense, Abby, that was actually one I had filed a while before, but there's also been weird um, internal things with when they've been posting things. So actually, um, yeah, great. I'm so, I'm so glad you liked it. But it does, but it does speak to this kind of like contract that is expected between um, critics and festivals, right? Because I have heard from, you know, a, a lot of colleagues that they are worried about access, right? Because there is this sense that there is this marketing value creation function to criticism, even when it is critical of the work, you know, like when it's coming out of the trades um, and it's, you, that's still spotlighting the film. And then it's like, you know, a publication like Film Comment, for instance, and then like the magazine devotes like a feature or something, you know, to even when there are critical elements to that essay or that piece, it is still saying this is worthy of conversation in a certain way. Yeah. So there is, so to me, like my question always in terms of operating within this space 
um, is like, well, you know, if, if I am trying to be critical of the infrastructure of a film festival and some of those very things that you mentioned, Jessica, like the viewing windows, um, for Sundance, for instance, it wasn't very clear to me that there was a four hour viewing window actually. And I missed out on a film because of that, because I started it, um, had an emergency call, you know, and then another viewing window started. So I started watching another film thinking that I could go back to the first one later in the day. And then I, I couldn't. And then I, you know, email the publicist and be like, I'm so sorry. Like, yeah, it's, it's interesting. It, how because I think that also every festival has responded so differently so for instance like one of the other things I think that people might expect from a virtual festival is that oh there's no longer going to be like a cap on the amount of passes or tickets that they can pull for instance um, but that hasn't been true at all that was one of the first things that happened in the virtual space with Jean du Real they just came out swinging saying that um, the amount of tickets available virtually was going to match the seat count of the theaters that their films were going to be in. I, I, I will also add, in terms of the reasoning, just, and I, I would love uh, you guys to correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that uh, many of these caps are demanded by distributors. And part of the reason is to have the film be viable for a release later on, a non-festival release, you know, the I would say theatrical release, but I guess, you know, that's still been virtual. So maybe the virtual theater release. And so is that valid? I mean, does it actually, uh, do you think it ruins a film's chances and viability and therefore uh, blocks its ability to, you know, um, or blocks the filmmaker's ability to have a commercially uh, viable film if they just sort of make it available to, you know, anyone and, and exploit the infinite potential of the online viewing space? I'm I'm certain that's that's the I'm certain that's the rationale. Um, but again, it's it's one of those conversations that I really wish was happening uh, at those levels between festivals and distributors. Then why 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 are festivals not going to distributors and saying, look, the, if the way people are going to be, you know, premiering their films, the way people are going to be consuming the films is going to be for the foreseeable future different, then let's maybe think about changing those, those removing some of those obstacles um, at, at the festival level. Yeah, I think that festivals are beholden to industry stakeholders in certain ways that, you know, haven't been advertised in the past. But definitely when I worked at film festivals and I never worked at, you know, like a 100% premiere festival like Berlin or TIFF or even like Locarno or Cinema du Real, for instance, um, that really prizes, if not the world premiere, but the international premiere of films. Um, and distributors always had a lot of power. And especially when the festival might be a major player within the market, the regional market that it's in. Like, you know, the festival might be showing the film in an 800 seat theater and might sell hundreds of tickets to it. Um, that might actually be more than what the film might sell in a regular one, a week long one at the art house theater in that city. Um, so in those cases, even before the pandemic, this I think just was never really open. Distributors still made those demands. So it wasn't something new, I think. Um, 
but it just sort of became more open when, for instance, certain films like only screened at a drive-in, for instance, at a hybrid festival and wasn't available online. Like these things suddenly, like the demarcations became a lot clearer. Um, and I, I think, you know, it's, it's, it really has to depend on the type of festival and the type of film too, right? For so many films, the film festival is their distribution mechanism. Even if they get a distributor, you know, theatrical is always a loss leader. Um, so the filmmakers, the screening fees that they demand, things like that might be the place in which case, you know, it is in their favor to if you know what you want really is audience and to sort of build a CV in order to make that second film or if you're touring with a short I mean short filmmakers in my opinion have no reason to buy into any of the screening cap things like they should be demanding like far and wide as much as possible um, and to try to get that attention but you know you might be paired with a feature like you might be the feature screening short and then you have no control over um kind of very little control over the exhibition mechanisms you're listening to the film comment podcast this episode is brought to you by movie a curated streaming service showing exceptional films from around the globe every day movie premieres a new film each one thoughtfully handpicked. From new directors to award winners, from everywhere on earth, beautiful, interesting, incredible movies. There's always something new to discover. I'm excited to check out two recent films that use footage shot by the late experimental filmmaker, Barbara Hammer. Lynn Sachs' A Month of Single Frames and Deborah Stratman's Vaver for Barbara, both of which are playing this month. And I really enjoyed following Mubi's exclusive retrospective of Amit Datta, who is India's foremost practitioner of experimental cinema. The series is called The Inimitable Image, and its final installment, the film The Seventh Walk, will start screening March 17 onwards on Mubi. I'm really excited to see it. If you want to check out these films too, you can try Mubi free for 30 days at mubi.com slash filmcomment. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash film comment for a whole month of great cinema for free. We're talking about how distribution versus film festivals, but also what about film festival versus film festival, right? If a festival allows infinite ticket purchases for a film, can that film then be shown at another festival and actually have value? I think maybe that's also one kind of scarcity that these film, you know, film festivals operate out of that is having a dedicated market. And um, without the in-person restriction of bringing a film to a local audience, maybe there's this attempt to create an artificial local audience by uh, setting caps so that when a film's uh, viewing cap runs out, people can still look forward to the next festival that will show that film, right? I, I think so too. I, I think a lot of this also comes down to stuff that we're, like we're talking about, which is sort of interfestival competition, right? And and there's a, there's a, there's I know a, a, a rare raw raw competition for premieres between the big um, between the big festivals and certainly between the big fall festivals uh, that all happen so close together. And actually, I think um, last year there was uh, there was. A, specifically something strange went on with the film Beginning, the Georgian film Beginning, um, where, because where, it actually played in Toronto 
um, as part of, of the of the online TIFF um, offering, but then was physically playing in San Sebastian because San Sebastian is one of the few festivals that physically uh, took place last year. And there was some, I don't know if it was a deal or if it was a competitive thing that was worked out between them where even though it had screened earlier, I think in Toronto, uh, reviews, for example, and the embargo was put up for after its physical premiere in San Sebastian. And so, I mean, that's just one, one particular example, but I know that there was some tension around that. And certainly from, uh, from the editorial side of, of the various trades and things, there was a little bit of, of angst going on over that. Um, so it, it's, it's just to illustrate that those, those sort of small little niggly things are, as, as Abby is saying, they've been magnified and they've been rendered more transparent by what has gone on recently. And I don't really, I am really disappointed that the opportunity hasn't been taken to somehow smooth over some of those things or to just to like to really radically rethink how we approach these things and i mean how who is it serving to have those that that competition for for premieres for example who is it, who, who is it actually serving and if festivals as they did briefly there was that thing in venice which was the other major festival to run physically last year where uh, the the heads of all the, the the artistic directors of all the major festivals got together and and sort of did this um hands across the world everybody i, I want to teach the world to sing um moment of like a uh, festival solidarity and how how you know we were all in this together and there was a sort of a brief flicker of, of, of a possibility there that maybe we would be looking at a more collaborative way, um, a, more, a way that better serves the movies, which ultimately is apparently what we're all here for. We're all kind of focusing on these, these business aspects and how this situation has kind of pulled back the curtain on a lot of that. It's making me wonder if maybe that previously the business aspects were very much in sync with the practice of physical screenings of experiencing films or and just the, the practice of experiencing films live in a theater for a period of time and then it's done and that like which is inherently exclusive so then you can kind of control that the level of exclusivity there so once we take away that exclusivity at all you're kind of there is a there is this sort of tension there right like how do we navigate like basically you're saying why even have a festival why distinguish between festivals let's just have like all these movies. No, I, I think that's a really great question, Clint. I mean, I think it does make me wonder what is a festival for? I'm not, and I'm not saying we shouldn't. I'm just saying that like this conversation is sort of like, there's a point at which like you kind of understand how like, like we, it's, I mean, everybody's trying to navigate this, the people planning the festivals. And I'm not necessarily saying there shouldn't be festivals, just to be clear people no, no no but i think it's it's good it's uh because a lot of what we're saying is we're talking about oh whether the filmmaker you know will lose out on the viability of their film in the market whether the film festival will not be able to attract enough tickets if another festival has already shown it we're talking from about a lot of different stakeholders we're talking a lot about profitability so i think Clint, you're raising an important question. What is a film festival actually for? Why does it exist outside of as distinct from screenings? And I think there's a lot, there's a lot of reasons. But I think one reason that we haven't really talked about is like for people to see movies. You know, it actually it all comes down to the Oscars, I think, is what you're saying. That's the reason. No, that I mean, I'm not, I, I don't mean that. <laughs> I also just mean that like, I, I guess I just, I also want to just think about like, you know, it's exciting 
like, okay, we, I just want, and I'm maybe, I'm just kind of playing devil's advocate here too, but uh, there's a good thing about the exclusivity of being like one of a few people who got a ticket to go see uh, a premiere at a festival. Like that's always been an exciting thing, you know? And I don't, not saying that that's, uh, that excitement outweighs the detriments here, but I do think that there's something exciting and good about that, that it's like, why festivals are valuable but isn't and isn't that exclusivity literally tied to the fact of the analog offline physical unless we start issuing non-fungible total tokens for everything we are sort of taking a very pure view of the film festival as something that you know elevates the object that the objects that they are presenting but you know, in terms of the history of film festivals, they're started for all sorts of reasons. And even within the A-list premiere festivals, um, down to, you know, more regional. What did Venice start for? Does anyone know? It was um, started by um, Mussolini's government pre- I, was, yeah. I, I was gonna say the Medici's. I was being sarcastic, by the way. I, I wasn't actually asking. <laughs> but... but actually, Abby, it was started by Mussolini? Just to confirm that. Yeah. Oh, that's really. Yeah, by his like arts minister to be. Specific. Yeah, it's a it's a nationalist thing. Yeah, they're nationalist enterprises. You know, they may not come out and state. You know, Berlin is going to program a lot of German filmmakers, but you know they might not have a German competition. Um, you know, but plenty of. You know, you know, the tier under festivals do, you know, have national competitions. You know, the local press is always holding these festivals up to task for what their programming says about the state of national cinema, right? That's like one thing. And they're state funded. Like, you know, appointed their political appointments a lot of times, these festival heads. Um, and then you have like the US where there's like so little state funding for the arts. And it has Sundance started as something that was trying to create a space for, you know, indie low budget films that were not able to break into the festival circuit at the time because there was no local festival circuit. All of the festivals in the US were festival of festivals models like San Francisco and New York and, um, and so it started from a regional standpoint, but it also became this nationalized thing um, and in a particularly American bent. And then you have like, you know, the fact that also these festivals, a lot of them occur in faraway places like Park City that are tourist towns and they also have this tourism element. And I find that a lot of like the really successful, right, like festivals in the US, if we're talking like Palm Springs or Telluride, they're also tourism initiatives uh, to bring people in. Right, they, they play such an important role in the local economy. I mean, there is a whole other aspect of, of, of film festivals that we're not talking about, and actually, which I think um, the Berlin Ally has, has, is, is addressing really well in this sort of hybrid format that it's taking. So Berlin, although it is a massive festival, I think the European film market is the largest film market in the world. Um, and it's attached to the Berlinale. Um, so although it's this massive international film festival, and I mean, as, as I'm sure any of you who, who watched any of, of this year's program will agree, it was a really terrific lineup this year. Um, 
that the 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 aspect of the Berlin, of the Berlinale that I think we often miss um, because we get all caught up in in our own press stuff or or you know uh, networking industry stuff um, is that it's actually got it's got massive public support here. I feel like that's always been Berlin's reputation, right, as the people's festival, as opposed to Venice and Cannes. Um, and I do think that, you know, these things are much more visible in person. And so the specific, like, culture and aura of these festivals, that is something that gets missed when it's flattened into virtual space, because it's, it's really difficult to tell virtually that type of public support that you are describing. It's really difficult to tell like who's in the audience with you. Like, is it students? Is it young people? There are definitely festivals in like, you know, post-Soviet countries where I noticed this the most that are really about, you know, they're for the people, even if they're programming experimental challenging films, right? Yes, Car Carlo Vivari has the campsite. Exactly. There's, a, there's, a, there's actually a campsite in Palo Vivari for, for students. Yeah, exactly. And things like that. And it's really about like, you know, bringing people together to recover from trauma as opposed to something else. And these are quite beautiful things that festivals can do. I've seen like the amazing, incredible, like mind boggling um, attendance at festivals like Yamagata where I don't know, they allow people to stand in the aisles if the theater gets full. You know, and that brings to mind also, uh, you know, for instance, the Mumbai Film Festival. I, you know, I attended a talk uh, featuring one of its programmers recently and I've worked with them uh, last year. And I've never actually attended it because by the time I got to doing some work for them, the pandemic had begun. But, you know, they, uh, this programmer at this talk was, uh, her name is Kalpana Nair and she was talking about how, so in India, films have to get a censor certificate uh, to screen. And she was talking about how they get a censor exemption for international films to screen there. And so they're able to show the new Gaspar Noé film. They showed Kaniba, uh, you know, and these kinds of challenging films that otherwise would not screen in Indian theaters. That is, you know, one of the only venues where it screens and people just queue up. I mean, even if it's not you know the best film that not a critically acclaimed film it's difficult to see that sort of challenging cinema otherwise and you know what you're saying abby and jessica you as well is making me think of maybe one thing we've not talked about as much is that festivals bring films to audiences that otherwise the uh, local distribution infrastructure may not but that is something that the whole virtual landscape not just virtual film festivals is challenging because now you have streaming services that overload their uh, catalogs with all kinds of films, including festival films. And so maybe that's something that festivals are also grappling with. They're not no longer maybe the harbinger of the obscure, the challenging, the kind of films you wouldn't find otherwise locally. Am I right in, in thinking that? I, I mean, I think I think you're right, but I, I also, again, I, I'm sounding like such a friggin' Pollyanna here. I'm sorry, but but again, it just seems to me that that you know when when we're all faced with with the rise of streaming, even before before the pandemic hit, um, you know, that the, the streaming thing was regarded as such a as such a threat to the theatrical uh, uh, experience and everything. So again. It, does this not, does this whole pandemic experience not therefore put the ball into the court of 
of festivals of of you know of of critics of of um, magazines that that you know write that put forth criticism or that cover new releases or whatever it is to operate in a different way now and to to perform a more curatorial uh, role in in people's online viewing. I'd like to direct you to my uh, personal blog. <laughs> <laughs> no. uh, but I, I just want to say that I think this is a good point to talk maybe to kind of shift to some of the good things that this virtual festival revolution has wrought. And I think that one thing that is true in many ways is that more people in more places are able to see some of these films. And are able to have the festival experience. I mean, whatever that may be, whatever the value of that is, I've heard I've seen that a lot. People saying, wow, I'm getting to attend Sundance. You know, I can say that I attended Sundance for the NYFF. Which, you know, if you grow up in like the middle of the country in a place where you can't go to a film festival or, in the, or you know, and, you know, Abby understands this, I, I imagine, you know, you, that's a, that's a valuable experience. So that, that's something that you, that's exciting. I mean, there's a couple of ways where things are quite exciting um, that I've written about recently, including the fact that there are festivals that are revenue sharing with filmmakers, which was a really um, quite taboo topic in the past. I think that, again, like it was never equitable. There are festivals that, you know, never pay a screening fee or whatever, but the vast majority of film festivals in this country and elsewhere do, in fact, sometimes pay screening fees depending on how much they want the film or need it or if it's a relationship that they really want to maintain depending on the leverage um, that you know film handler has um, but there are things that are happening in that realm it's not really a huge amount of money but it definitely is a shift in the way that festivals are doing things um, there's also a lot of festivals are not a lot, but there are festivals that are being more transparent too about uh, audience and who is attending. Like they're sharing um, mailing list information, for instance, with filmmakers. So um, this was also sort of a scarcity thing. I, it, it's kind of troubling for me. Um, because in the US where we have the virtual cinema phenomenon, we have distributors that are now gathering, you know, essentially what would be the audience for all of these art house cinemas. And so they can sort of skip over the cinema themselves, even if right now they are still profit sharing with the theaters. But it, it is smoothing the way for, you know, cutting out the exhibition, like, gatekeeping apparatus like the distributor just has a streaming platform on their website and yeah you, exactly yeah. I, I think there are certain there there were certain things that I think are 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 hopeful um and even on a very small level um I it's been a bugbear of mine that to, to even use the term online festival uh, a little like you were saying at the very beginning a festival is supposed to be a party and I'm sorry sitting in front of your computer screen by yourself is not a party um so I, I hate the term online festival and I, I actually really appreciated and noticed the fact that the Berlinale did not call the five-day thing that we just did online a festival they didn't even call it the online Berlinale it was an in press and industry event and so they that you know that kind of gave them the license to strip away whatever bells and whistles they would have had Berlin is not does not tend to be a big bells and whistles festival anyway um but it did mean that it was just like okay this is you know this is this is going to be this bit 
and then we're going to have the festival right. in the summer. And for a specific business purpose, so you guys can do your jobs. Yeah. That was one way of approaching it. And then I also, um, I, not to, I, I don't know how involved you are with True False this year, Abby, but um, did, did seem like they've put an awful lot of thought into how to create an online offering that isn't just their their normal festival only worse because it's online but looks like they also have some kind of uh teleporter pass experience is that what you're talking about yes that's what i'm talking about and yes and, and i i honestly have no idea what it what it actually is but um they are the first festival to have contacted me in that way as opposed to just being a you know call for for accreditation like they they like the festivals normally put out that there was something intriguing here and even that to me is is a green shoot of like well at least maybe it's going to be a, a huge disaster and it'll all, it'll all fall apart terribly but but at least somebody is trying to think about a way to to maneuver these these new conditions under which we're all working into something new into an evolution as opposed to just what we had before only not as good let's continue this conversation at some point in the future and um maybe we could reconvene when we see how things pan out mm-hmm. yeah one year anniversary of this recording how long <laughs> which is yeah how wrong we all were we'll all be floating heads in like a in a tiktok space or something so thanks both of you for joining us today thank you so much um, it was a really Thanks great conversation. Great fun. Yeah, this was the most fun I've had on a podcast recording. Thank you, Jessica. Thank you, Clinton. Thank you, Baby Cup. This episode of the Film Comment Podcast is sponsored by Movie and made possible by our subscribers and by the members and patrons of Film at Lincoln Center. The Film Comment Podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com.